Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiki. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Today, my guest is Mani Ratnam, Senior Vice President at Strategic Education Inc. In this conversation, Mani shares his thoughts and experience related to the transition from being a techie to someone visualizing and creating a larger impact and how wanting to take ownership of the impact helped him in this transition over time. He also talks about using data-driven experimentation-based approaches in solving problems and while using some formal models such as Lean Thinking, Six Sigma, etc., it is also about understanding the user personas and their challenges when designing the key value proposition for the company and while using data, why that alone is not sufficient to make decisions. His views on delivering knowledge not just in time but also just enough as needed at the moment. We go on to talk about the significance of a culture of innovation and how to encourage teams to take risks, how to help the new team members think team results before individual confidence and finally he shares his thoughts on work-life balance and his perspective on the future of IT as a career option and what he has learned in his own career. Listen on. Welcome to Software People Stories Money. Thank you Shep. It's a great honor to be here and I look forward to this conversation. As we normally do, we start with the guest introducing oneself because that's always the best rather than me trying to paraphrase what you've done because you've done so much in your career and a lot of variety. It's probably best if you could describe and then we can take our conversation forward from there. I'm glad to. Thank you, Shep. So I'm currently with a company called Strategic Education Inc. Uh, we are based here in the United States and I run a portfolio of strategic initiatives and support operations for the organization. But I began my career in, in the mid-80s, and I started doing coding, and I graduated with an undergraduate degree in statistics. And then slowly over time, I've moved from being a software engineer into leadership roles within a traditional IT organization, and subsequently moved more to the business side. And where we are focused now as an organization, and what I'm most excited about, is helping uh, non-traditional students, adult learners, improve their economic mobility by going back to school and improving their careers and taking the next step in their careers. So that's a big part of what we do as strategic education. And my career has moved from being in uh, IT specific roles to being more involved in leadership roles on the business side. Wonderful. So what would you say is the probably big change or the transition from being a techie to someone who strategizes and visualizes much larger impact? I think it's, uh, you know, the best way to describe it is it didn't happen uh, suddenly, right? It was not uh, a light bulb that went off. I think slowly over time, uh, working on various projects initially, came to the realization that, uh, you know, there are ideas that always flow through you that where you can think you could make a bigger impact and you want to try and get those ideas all the way to the finish line. And I felt like having some skin in the game, being uh, having ownership for the end result and being able to drive that all the way to, to completion was an important part of what I wanted to do. So I slowly progressed from just doing projects, 
uh, software projects to actually implementing them and then figuring out how to actually drive greater value from a business standpoint to our customers. And that sort of progression has led me through various stages in my career to where I am today. Yeah, I understand it is a progression, but at some time when you had to at least grapple with uh, challenges that are probably huge, larger than probably what one person can do, and then realizing mm -hmm. that through a team or probably multiple teams, how did uh, your own perspective or your own uh, approach to either conceptualizing or articulating the problem as well as guiding the teams through to a goal? How did that change happen? Um, you know, it's been very fortunate. I, I'd say I've been very fortunate uh, throughout my career to have the opportunity to work with a lot of great people who have tremendous experience in their own rights, bring a lot of knowledge and expertise, uh, plus have friends and mentors that you learn from. So collectively, you work within an ecosystem and you try and understand what's the best way to solve a problem. And given my background, given our background in technology, technology obviously plays a big role in that. But you try and understand how to best make the kind of impact that you would, you can deliver to the end customer. And I think that's always been in the forefront, whether you're building a new product or you're trying to solve a specific problem. And part of that involves understanding, you know, what's the value proposition to the customer? And in this case, specifically, we are talking about students and how do you improve the student experience? And how do you make sure that we are retaining students and students don't drop out for reasons that could be easily avoided and creating the kinds of opportunities for adult students to go back to school, leveraging all the capabilities that technology can provide. Uh, so it involves a lot of thinking, uh, experimentation, uh, innovation and creativity and learning by trial. Uh, failing often and then trying to learn what how you can do it better. Yeah, this uh, approach of experimenting, learning that you mentioned, is that something that is built on any of the popular models or is that something that was homegrown over time? It's mostly homegrown. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there is not a formal sort of methodology that we adopted. I think what we tried to do is to say, if you're trying, you know, when you're trying to solve uh, a customer experience issue, you start with the data, you understand you know, what types of actions might have a positive impact, and then you start small. So you make a change, you study the change and the effects of the change and see if it makes an impact or not. And then you, based on the assessment, you may pivot and change your approach, or you may decide that you want to scale and then continue to expand the actions that you're taking, right? So it's, it's basically a process of trying something, experimenting, learning from it, making sure it's data-driven, and continue to iterate through that process over time till you can achieve the full impact that you're seeking to achieve. Uh, so I think there's a lot of methodology and science to it too, but as an organization, what we've tried to do is to be nimble and flexible for the most part. We've leveraged some aspects of uh, you know, lean thinking, Six Sigma, formal sort of assessment of data and calculation and rigor to to inform the process, but for the most part, it's been sort of homegrown. Interesting. Continuing on that, you also mentioned the how do you reduce dropouts when you talked about uh, that you are doing. And when you are dealing with you know, students probably coming with you know, different demographies, different uh, probably priorities or other constraints and distractions that they have, how do you do that using data? Or uh, are there other things also that you 
consider or you need to consider beyond data, something that may not be always you know, quantifiable or measurable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a, a, a complicated and, and a big question. We could spend hours talking about this. There's tons of research, probably 30, 40 years of research done on this topic across uh, various institutions. Uh, and we've leveraged some of the, you know, the best thinking over the years to try and inform what we've tried to do. In, in our case, in a sense, we're dealing largely with non-traditional students. So adults, you know, typically at the undergraduate level, the average age might be in the late 20s. When you look at graduate students who are pursuing master's or doctoral degrees, it's much higher than that. There are lots of forces that would tend to take a student away from school. So even though there's a desire and a commitment to go back to school, there are you know, situations from a life standpoint, could be health-related, family, job, all kinds of pressures that keep the student away from school. And what we try to do is to create an experience where we create the flexibility that students need, adult students. Uh, we also provide support services, typically through advising and coaching. And all of the tools that, could, that we think will sort of counter the forces that would take the student away from school, we can try and retain the students and keep them in class. So that's, that's primarily from a, from a delivery model standpoint. The other things that I think Papella and Strayer have done, which is pretty unique within the higher education industry, if you look at uh, almost all programs, they tend to be tied to seat time, meaning you have to spend three or four years in school to get a degree, and learning is not associated with the amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. What we've tried to do with one of our product categories called FlexPath, which is pretty intuitive, is we've disconnected learning from seat time. Uh, so if you're a professional and have a lot of experience and expertise and knowledge already, you can actually test your way through the program and get to your credential far quicker without having to spend time sitting through the program, learning what you already know. So that also makes it possible for adult students to get the degree and the credential that they need and be recognized for the knowledge that they have without having to spend more time than is absolutely necessary in school. So that also helps with the flexibility that adult non-traditional students need. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting because that's one of the things that, at least personally, I have found if there is a topic that you know, when you are in a cohort, you still have to go through the grind and uh, sometimes you get bored. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a very interesting model. So especially in our case, I'll give you a specific example. People in the nursing profession, for example, uh, in, a, in, the, in the United States, they may get a two years associate's degree, become a registered nurse, but then to move up to the next level within their career, they need to get an undergraduate bachelor's degree in nursing. And while they have all of the practical knowledge and training, it still takes them time in the traditional model to get through that undergraduate degree. With the FlexPath option, they can progress through that very, very quickly, which is a huge benefit to to the nurses in the profession. I think this is something that has always you know, fascinated me. All this internet and searches and all that have probably shortened mm -hmm. the distances, but this actually shortens the time required. That's, that's really very really powerful. Yep. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to share any stories of some of the experiments that worked or that didn't work in a generic manner that others might benefit from? Sure, yeah. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we we, uh, we, we use data for, and I, I think this is an interesting one, you know, we, we, the data tells you a little bit of the story, right? So if you, if you have a cohort of students or you have a specific student that is not progressing 
or is not attending school, not completing assignments at time. Very often you look at the data, the data can actually show you that very easily, right? And we tend to think that at that point, it's very easy for us to intervene and propose a solution, right? That, that, so the data is very helpful from that standpoint. What the data doesn't tell you is what's the root cause behind the problem, right? So, so what it requires is a connection, a human-to-human connection, where the advisor or the coach has to actually sit down with the student and have an open conversation and ask some intrusive questions about what exactly is going on and what kinds of issues and challenges the student is facing. So you have to go through the same process of even first diagnosing the problem, uh, building a connection, empathizing with the student before you can probably propose any kinds of recommendations and solutions to help the student overcome the hurdles that they may be facing. So that's an area that the data doesn't really help you. And that's something that we've learned, that you can't, the data helps you assess and identify where the problem might be. The data doesn't yet help you figure out what the prescriptive solutions might be. And then the burden of actually taking the necessary action is almost always on the student side. So they have to commit to it. They have to understand that that is critical for them to take those steps in order to overcome the hurdle. And for the most part, as an institution, we only can play a supporting role uh, in a very limited capacity to solve that problem. So that tends to be a pretty big challenge to solve from a retention standpoint, and one that you know we can only solve to a certain extent. Yeah. Now, when um, there are students with uh, different, say, learning appetite or learning speeds or learning styles, does data help you in that area as well? You know, we, we, yes, I, I think so. It's a great question. And I can talk about an experiment that we did a few years ago, which did not turn out to be very successful. So there's a lot of conversation in the higher education industry about adaptive learning and how do you take a student from you know, A to B and what's the path to go from A to B to ensure that there is mastery of the concepts. And that path is often not a straight line. It, uh, a student may have to go back and relearn some of the basics to go from A to B to be able to understand exactly and get to the finish line. And that path varies from student to student to student. So there are models out there, there are platforms out there that actually enable the creation of content that's appropriate that would be personalized based on the learning ability, the speed, and the baseline for each individual student. So we actually introduced those models in a couple of our programs to test out the efficacy of the model. And uh, even though we had a fairly large number of students within the test, we did not have great experience with, with the platforms and the implementation and the test itself. We found that it was very complicated, hard to create the content, and in many respects, we did not see the results that we were expecting. So there was a lot of expectation and interest and excitement about experimenting with the adaptive learning concept. The test that we conducted fell short of our expectations in a very significant way. So we, at one point, then decided not to scale that and continue that as we had originally thought that we could. And you're talking about higher education. Uh, but do you also have any programs for uh, just skilling or skill training? Like you mentioned, if it is about nursing, uh, do you have those kinds of programs as well? Uh, yes, we do. But majority of our students, I would say, are in uh, 
degree programs, meaning undergraduate programs or master's, doctoral programs. As a company, uh, Strategic Education also has a couple of businesses that provide software engineering courses to students. Uh, we have an institution out in the Bay Area that focuses exclusively on training uh, women in the field of software engineering. And then we also have another boot camp that focuses on providing immersive training in software engineering. And we work extensively with various employers to provide training and resources to their current staff as well. Okay. The reason I asked that was uh, a question that I've had for uh, a long time, uh, which is uh, delivering learning through digital uh, channels. Yeah, we can do it uh, just in time, but can we also do just enough? I mean, whatever is needed in terms of skilling at that point of time, more of problem solving or something, what I need at that time, is there any work that is happening in that space where, uh, because with so much of uh, sensor technology and the, uh, the machine learning or the virtual reality and augmented reality and all that, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is it possible to deliver something you know, just in time and you know, just enough for that moment? I think certainly there are lots of examples like that in the industry where there are you know, smaller companies, organizations trying to deliver learning in many different models, right? So if you think about the future of the workforce, talk a lot about lifelong learning and getting a degree or a graduate degree is not the end of it. So when your career spans 40 plus years, you're talking about how do you make sure that the workforce can go back through this process and not necessarily have to go back to a traditional school, uh, but have access to information, have access to knowledge and continue to reskill themselves to be able to progress through probably multiple careers within a lifetime. And I think the technology is evolving in that respect today. And there are various models that will continue to evolve as you think about the needs of the future workforce and what employers expect from their teams as we go forward. Switching tracks, when you are handling these kinds of problems or problems of this scale or with so much of ambiguity, how do you deal with ambiguity as a leader? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, as an organization, so when our, our mission and objective is to figure out how to transform education in the broadest context, right? So that's, that's sort of the problem we are trying to solve. If you think about the traditional classroom and how education has worked, it probably hasn't changed in the last thousand years or so. It's the textbook, and then it's the sage on the stage who's giving a lecture, and then you have exams, and then students get a degree. What we're trying to figure out is how do you disrupt that business model and create a system that drives much greater value to the consumer? And it goes back to the previous question uh, that you raised. And I think if you think about the challenges with education and what consumers really want, there's a, you know, cost is a big hurdle for many, many students. Access to education is a big uh, issue for students. And then it's also a question of outcomes. Does getting the degree give you the opportunity to do what you need to do? And does that, uh, does that you know, keep, create a path for you to, to increase your economic mobility and progress through your careers, right? So we're trying to figure out how to change the business model. And I think there's so much going on within the education industry to do that, whether you talk about uh, you know, degree credentials, non-degree credentials, training, just-in-time learning, bite-sized learning, lifelong learning. I think each of these ideas are, are fantastic opportunities to experiment, 
and try. And in, in many cases, it requires an infusion of capital of some kind to experiment and see what is viable and is there a consumer need for it? How do we make sure that we're creating the right model that's actually going to drive business value that can be monetized? So then that becomes a real idea that can be scaled. So for us as a business, we, we continue to think about all of these ideas to figure out where we think we as an organization need to be five years from now, 10 years from now, and where we should be investing so we can be at the forefront of the industry and drive the greatest value back to the consumer. That's, uh, again, interesting. This term, you know, business value is, again, something that comes up very frequently when I talk to uh, CIOs or CTOs, where they say, what is the value delivered? And many teams also kind of you know, grapple with that. So mm -hmm. what would be your approach of uh, articulating the business value delivered by IT? In my mind, I don't sort of separate the business from IT. I think the way I tend to think about it is, is what is the ultimate problem you're trying to solve and how do you make sure that you capture the value that you're trying to deliver? Now, in many instances, you know, there are projects that we do from one year to the next, which is to expand our base capability or just to refresh our technology capabilities and switch from one platform to the other. So those are more sort of the routine technology refresh upgrade types of initiatives. But in terms of real innovation, uh, trying to experiment with new ideas, develop some capabilities, that may be unique or different to see how they gain any kind of traction in the marketplace. Uh, you have to look at it as one complete solution to say, if we did this, do we think it's going to make an impact? Is it going to actually drive value back to the customer? And if so, is it significant? And there's no separation there between you know, what is technology and what's business. It's all one and the same. And the important question is, what did we learn from the process? So if you try 10 different ideas, if one or two of them stick, then you probably learned a lot uh, as you go through that process. And ultimately, I think it comes down to the culture and the talent that you have within the organization. If you're able to create a culture of agility and innovation and increase your adaptability to change, I think that the right ideas will gain traction eventually and be able to create value for the organization and for all of your customers as well. Yeah, that was actually running in my mind as well when you mentioned culture, is how do you promote or encourage this culture of innovation and people taking risks? When you said that now you try a lot of experiments mm -hmm. and some of them might fail, but you learn from them. Mm -hmm. How do you encourage your teams to actually go and take risks? And be I think it, it, yeah, it starts from the top, right? So there is a, you need to have a high tolerance for failure, meaning you know, we, in years past, I know, you know, we'd always track projects and we'd say, you know, what's your project budget? When are you going to deliver? And you had to hit your timelines and deadlines and you would manage your scope and your resources very tightly. And then you'd come back and say 75% of your projects take longer to deliver and they go beyond the original budget. And how do we, you know, make the process work better, right? That seemed to be the, more, the, the greatest focus. Now, while that is still important, you know, you want to try and manage initiatives very tightly and deliver. I think that there is also a need to have greater tolerance for risk-taking, right? So you, you want to be quick. You don't want to necessarily strive for perfection in every single case. And the most important outcome is probably the learning that also occurs of things that you did not know and anticipate when you started the initiative. So that learning process and the risk tolerance and creating the freedom for your team to be able to try different things and fail and learn from it, 
I think is super important. And if that sort of culture permeates throughout the organization into the lowest levels, then I think that that gives people the freedom to try different things and come up with ideas and be much more agile and innovative as opposed to being you know, very tightly focused and disciplined on just delivering what's expected. Related to that, at least when people enter IT as a career or coming from educational systems that focus more on individual performance, individual brilliance, and when they need to perform as a team, how do you enable that kind of a transition for the members coming into your team? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, it, it, we tend to, oftentimes, you know, it, it, it's quite challenging. It's, uh, we tend to reward individual performance. And, you know, it, it's, it's a question of how do you make sure that when you work together with various functions, various team members across even in the, in the large company, how do you recognize people and make sure that you have folks who are complementary in terms of skill sets uh, and what value they bring to the table to be able to get to where you want to go. And that's something that we continue to promote internally within the organization. At the end of the day, we, we try to make sure that recognition is for the team, but you know, there's a balance between how much you recognize individuals, knowing that you know, talent is always useful and there's always a war for talent in the industry and is striving to get the best talent and hire the best talent so you can always be ahead of where you need to be. I don't know whether it is uh, what drives it, but uh, the terms that are normally used for people in IT as you know, geeks or nerds. Yeah. What's your take on uh, this whole concept of you know, work-life balance in the IT industry? I think, I think, you know, IT or non-IT, we all have the same set of challenges. I think, you know, it comes back to um, what I try to do personally is when you have a complex initiative or a problem you're trying to solve is how do you create a team that is going to be successful and effective at delivering the solution? And do you have the right mix of talent skills, expertise, knowledge, and do you set realistic goals to encourage the team to be creative and innovative? And if you do, if you create the right kind of environment that's going to foster teamwork and creativity, then this issue of being burnt out or small portion of the team bearing the brunt of the work or not having a realistic plan as to what you want to achieve and how you achieve it tends to be less of an issue, right? You don't want to let and, and typically we, we try, even though you know, many projects have you know, strict timelines and deadlines and commitments, we try to organize things in a way that that doesn't become the primary focus and objective, right? Mm -hmm. What you want to do is, so if I set out to solve a business problem, and I think that, okay, you know, I might solve this problem in six months, but if I don't solve the problem in six months, that's not necessarily failure, right? I may still have learned a lot of things, I know that eventually I'm going to write, get it right. So I'm not going to give up. I'm going to iterate through this process. And perhaps a year from now, I'm going to be in a much better situation than where I am today. So I do have the flexibility. And I think we, we should be thinking about projects and initiatives and solving complex challenges. So it's not necessarily time-bound, but you're trying to learn through the process and get to the best end state that you would desire. What has been the biggest challenge that you face in building teams that need to be innovative? Was there a challenge where uh, some older mindsets, when you said either because of comfort feel or uh, because they wanted something to look good on their resumes probably, and they didn't want to change? And uh, how have you been able to address 
those kinds of challenges to bring a more cohesive team that is innovative. Yeah, I think I think driving any kind of transformational change across a business has many many different dimensions to the challenge, right? So it's changing existing mindsets, it's trying to get people to think outside the box, to say what is possible, and changing the way you work, and not just incremental change. Sometimes you even question: Is this really valuable? Is this driving value back to the customer? Why do we need to do it? And can we think of just alternate ways of doing it, or not doing it at all? Or what would it drive greater value to the customer? So rethinking processes, rethinking the value stream in its totality before you get down, get down to actual solution development and approaching the problem with the customer in mind, I think is always the first hurdle that you run into. And you know, from there on, it, it tends to become an execution challenge, right? So it's keeping, if you have large teams, keeping people informed, communicating regularly, making sure you reinforce what the key objectives and drivers and goals are. So you stay focused on the objective, not being, like I said, too focused on time, but focus more on quality and the end state that you're trying to achieve, knowing that you know, that's where you want to be. And at the end of the day, if you iterate through the process, you are going to be successful as opposed to focusing on just immediate milestones along the way. That's always challenging with you know, big, complex initiatives where you're trying to transform a line of business or a big part of the organization. I didn't realize that we've uh, covered a lot of ground in the last few minutes. There's one question that I would uh, normally like to get our guest perspectives is uh, any advice you have for somebody who is considering getting into IT? Because on one hand, people say that there are so many things happening. And uh, the other hand, they said, no, it's all going to be automated. There is no future for IT as a career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know, if, if you go back to 30 or 40 years ago, the, you know, the change in the technology, the use of technology and how ubiquitous it has become. Uh, so you can't imagine what life would be today 30 or 40 years ago. And I think you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I think it's going to be dramatically different than what it is today and what many right. of us could foresee. So, so that grounding in technology and education in technology is, I think, super critical for everybody to one extent or another. And I think there's so much opportunity within every industry to try and understand how you can build better products or deliver better services and capabilities to consumers and transform, transform business models and delivery models. That I think it's a, a very interesting field to be in. And uh, I couldn't, you know, encourage anyone more to get into this particular field and understand how you can create greater value. And it's, you know, for me personally, it's been a hugely enriching opportunity to go from, you know, my beginning as a as a software engineer and to get to where I'm at uh, on the business side. And I, I continue to learn more every single day. And even though I've changed sort of my career trajectory, what gets me most excited is to play a small part in trying to understand and figure out how to transform what the system of education might look like in the future and have the opportunity to try different things out and see if you can make a bigger impact to society as a whole and to the lives of other people. That's wonderful, Mani, and, and very inspiring that it's not just about writing code, but the transformation that you're bringing in for a sector, not mm-hmm. even one organization. It seems to be kind of mind-boggling or a little overwhelming, but 
I guess what you've done is definitely very, very impressive. That's about the time here. Yeah. yeah, thanks a lot, Mani, for you know, taking the time to share your perspective. Oh, sure. There are some more questions that come up. Maybe we'll uh, catch up on another conversation later. Yeah, that sounds great. And, uh, yeah. Thanks once again for you know, getting up so early in winter and you know, making the time for this. Oh, no problem at all. The pleasure is entirely mine. I hope this was useful to share. If you need anything from me, uh, feel free to reach out. And I really want to thank you and Zafar for the opportunity to be here today. And please say, pass on my regards to Zafar and say hi for me. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Manny. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.